This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Bradley Walters. He's the author of The Greening of St. Lucia, Economic Development and Environmental Change in the Eastern Caribbean. It was published by the University of West Indies Press in 2019. The book begins with a paradox. St. Lucia is currently undergoing reforestation as opposed to deforestation. Walters ties the process to unexpected factors, including migration, tourism, and agriculture. Using interdisciplinary methods, he dives into the history and economy of this island to tell a fascinating and important story. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Brad. It's uh, really nice to speak to you this afternoon. Hi. It's great to uh, have this opportunity to talk about my work. Yeah, um, I was really interested and curious as we were just sort of chatting about to see a book about the environment in the Caribbean, and it's but it's not just you know it's not just a book about the environment. It seems to me that you were trying to do something very interdisciplinary. So one of my first questions for you is to maybe talk about yourself in terms of what your disciplines are. What are your what's your what's your disciplinary training, and how did you come to this project? Okay, yeah, I guess you know everybody talks about interdisciplinarity, but I, I think I'm one of the sort of people who actually walks. The talk and it reflects the fact that my my first degree was actually in the biological sciences uh, quite a long time ago and then I moved from there into a master's degree of environmental studies which is interdisciplinary and then I went for my PhD work at Rutgers University um, I focus more on social science aspects so I sort of broadly covered the gamut from the natural social science natural to social sciences spectrums. Um, and as you're probably aware with the book, I mean, there's also a fairly, fairly heavily historical element to the book as well. So I guess you could say, I'm, I, as I think a lot of people, as we get older, we become more historically inclined. So in that sense, I, I have this kind of broad interdisciplinary training uh, that is allows me to do research that where I can actually dig fairly deeply into the ecological questions, as well as a number of the social scientific social science questions. Um, and in that sense, that was one of my goals with the book was to present it as a case study, one case study. I mean, I've, I published a number of the pieces of this in journal articles, you know, some in more social science journals, some in more natural science journals, but I wanted to bring it all together in one, under one cover, partly as a demo of, of what one can achieve with a sort of genuine interdisciplinary research. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I was really, um, I was struck by that idea that you were sort of presenting this as a case study, but also as a possibility for, okay, here, here's a, a kind of roadmap for how you might study this problem. So before we get to how you answered the central paradox of the book, I want to just um, talk to you a little bit about how you came to understand it as a central paradox. And that is that, um, so you're finding what you found in St. Lucia is reforestation in a region that's mostly characterized by deforestation and environment, environmental degradation more broadly, right? So how, how did you even kind of discover that this reforestation was taking place? Yeah, I am um, following completion of my master's degree at Dalhousie University uh, in the in 1990s when I finished that, I got the opportunity to do an internship with an organization 
called Canary, the Caribbean Natural Resources Institute, which at the time was based uh, in Viewfort, which is the southernmost town of St. Lucia. And I had briefly met the director of this institute who had come up and given a presentation at Dal while I was a student, and that's how the connection was made, and he and and just the timing was right. I had always wanted to to do international work, but up until that point, I hadn't had the opportunity to to do so. But they had just landed a grant, and 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 so they brought me down to do some project documentation and a bit of project analysis and evaluation work for them. And they were doing work uh, mostly in the coastal areas and mangroves, coral reefs, uh, with fisheries groups and so on, a little bit of upland work. But, you know, I spent, well, I went down for three months and ended up spending eight months there because I enjoyed it so much. And it was just a really positive experience for both sides. But it was really apparent when I was there that while we were focusing on coastal work, community-focused environmental conservation work, that the, the real environmental crises that was unfolding on the island at that time, so we're talking again in, you know, the early 1990s, late 80s, early 1990s, was very much what was happening happening in the uplands. Now, St. Lucia is a very rugged uh, uh, island, but it has great agricultural soils, a beautiful climate for growing a lot of things, so, so there's always been a lot of farming done. But... Uh, the, the, island, the island was experiencing a real deforestation crisis, so to speak, in that agriculture was pushing further and further into the deep interior, up onto steeper and steeper slopes. So there was loss of forests uh, and the associated biodiversity with that. There was also a lot of problems with soil erosion, agrochemical contamination of waterways, uh, because banana farming was the predominant activity at that time, and they used a lot of agrochemicals. And, you know, the, the species were endangered. You know, the, the, the iconic St. Lucia parrot uh, was seen as deep, highly threatened at this point. The, 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 the total population estimates were in the order of 200 or so individuals. And so this was really very much what a lot of people were talking about and concerned with. And this was also a common problem in many uh, parts of the Caribbean and elsewhere at this time. So that was, I left in 1991 and went off, did my, spent some time in, in Southeast Asia, did a PhD, then got a job uh, in New Brunswick here at Mount Allison University and did some work, wrote up my PhD work on, on Philippine mangroves, Southeast Asia, did a bit of research up here. But all along through that, that time, I always thought in the back of my head, you know, sort of an itch that. You just can't scratch it. I, I always wanted to go back to St. Lucia because I enjoyed my time there so much. So finally, after I'd sort of settled in uh, to my job here um, and gotten tenure, I, I decided, okay, I, I, I'm going to go back to St. Lucia. I want to, you know, reorient my research program away from Southeast Asia and back to the Caribbean where, where I had this previous connection. So I went back in 2005, late 2005, for the first time, so it had been roughly a 15-year absence. And I was really quite shocked when I got there for two reasons. One was, you know, along the coast and in the, many of the lowlands areas, uh, the island had be, become much more heavily developed with hard development. Residential housing had spread through much of the lowlands and, and hotel development had spread into a whole bunch of additional coastal areas. So, that, so when you're near the coast... You know, it was struck by how much more development there was. But on the other side, um, you know, I spent time going into the hills and the countryside and into the mountains. And I was really struck by how much less agriculture was happening and that a lot of the hillsides that had been under farming when I was there in the 1990-91 were now reforesting. And this was clearly happening um, all over the island and to a dramatic uh, extent. And so I, I, I thought this was a really interesting, uh, you know, I do my area of research is environmental change research. And here we had a great example of very dramatic environmental change, but environmental change of the kind that is more is generally viewed as positive. In other words, you hear the narrative about forests is predominantly about deforestation not just in the Caribbean, but through much of the global south. 
And here we had a, a, an example, a clear, dramatic example of the opposite of that, of, of sort of broad reforestation of the landscape, at least in the uplands. So that's what caught my attention. And, and, and it was at that point that I, I spent a bit of time down there and, and crafted a sort of research proposal idea from those initial reconnaissance trips and then was able to get a bit of, uh, well, some research funding from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada and, and returned there then subsequently over my sabbatical and then subsequent years to, to, to follow up basically with an idea of understanding, well, describing what had happened in recent decades on the island, but also understanding and explaining why that had happened. So why... So what is the character of this deforestation and then reforestation? And why has this happened? Why have we got such a dramatic reversal and trend of reforestation? And this speaks to a lot of issues relating to environmental conservation, of course, but also it ties into these larger questions of economic development and rural development uh, on, on small island states. And if you can have a, you know, if you can show how, uh, you know, a country like St. Lucia can, can actually continue to develop while majority, more of its land is returned to, to natural or semi-natural conditions. You know, that, these are really, this provides a very interesting case study uh, that speaks to the whole discourse and policies around sustainable development and so on. Right, and so that's a very com- complicated story that you're going to tell. And um, now is when we talk about your method, which you call abductive causal eventism. Ace for short. Ace, um, yeah. And the, the book is, is, is both an, ex, an exploration of St. Lucia in terms of that method, but also, as we said, a defense of that method. So, so please, and for, you know, for most of us humanists, um, <laughs> historians, literary scholars, explain to us what, what, ace, what ace is. Okay, um, what I'm going to do actually is just first read a brief excerpt from the book describing in, in, <laughs> in concise form what ACE is, and then I'll back up and contextualize this for you. But ACE, or Abductive Causal Eventism, which is a methodology that I co-developed with my former dissertation supervisor at Rutgers University, Andrew, Professor Andrew Vida. Um, ACE is an explanation-oriented methodology based on a pragmatic view of research methods and explanation that places at the center of research inquiry the answering of why questions about events, including human actions and environmental changes, rather than evaluating causal theories, models, or factors that are thought in advance to influence such changes. ACE entails constructing causal histories of interrelated social and or biophysical events backward in time and outward or inward in space through a process of eliminative inference and reasoning from effects to causes. Avoiding rigid a prior assumptions about which events or kinds of events will do the explaining, the researcher may seek whatever socioeconomic and biophysical information is expected to be relevant to answering specific questions of interest. Diverse types of evidence are then effectively integrated by virtue of focus, not on what is prescribed by some general theory or model, but rather on clear, concrete events as possible situation-specific causes. Okay, now that's obviously, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, and I want to try and do this um, in a way that, that, that doesn't confuse further. <laughs> but in any case, you know, the, the, the real challenge of doing interdisciplinary environmental research, well, there are several, but two really important ones are how, first of all, do you effectively integrate the methods and the information from the natural and the social sciences? I mean, this, again, gets to the heart of doing real interdisciplinary research. And books, many thousands of articles and books have been written about effort attempts to to integrate, you know, between the natural and social sciences. But you know, when you dig into the stuff, you realize there's been surprisingly little success at doing this. Okay, um, because it's difficult. You're dealing with you know different ep- epistemologies, different methods, and so on. And so. What we, what Pete Biden and I 
tried to do with this methodology or what we hope to achieve in the development of this. And this reflects, again, um, decades of thinking about these issues on the point uh, on behalf of Pete Vida, who's, you know, well into his senior years, as well as uh, years of reflection on myself. It's a sort of cut through what, you know, what are the commonalities about research that you find in the natural sciences and social sciences? What are the effective meeting points in terms of language and how we can get at things like ex explanation uh, of things happening of interest and, 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 a lot, and parsing out a lot of the baggage that comes with different theoretical approaches and different methodological approaches. And so, you know, our approach is essentially stripping things down and saying, you know, first of all, you have to focus on explaining particular phenomena of interest. These are your events, your environmental changes, your human actions that are of interest. And rather than sort of getting hung up, as most research, researchers do early on, with a particular theoretical approach or a particular model or a particular set of, of assumptions of what be, might be causing or explaining the, this phenomenon of interest, you, you have to start by just specifying, measuring what that interest is, and then moving back in time and outward or inward in space to try and explain these changes based on the causes that you can find evidence for. Okay, and so the 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 the, the, the we start with the assumption that that theory and methods and so on, the tools of research are there, they're available to us, but they're like they're like things that you, that you can pull out of a toolbox when you need them, but they shouldn't be the things that determine in advance how you approach a research problem. You're essentially putting the the explanatory cart before the horse by doing that, and so. so what would an example of, you know, this very, this very, you know, um, question of reforestation, what would an example of that look like? An example of, okay, let's, let's do it, you know, from starting with the theory and moving to the, to the effect rather than the way that you're doing it. Well, this, I mean, the, the typical approach would be to say, okay, we, if, if I'm a, uh, a Marxist po or a post-structuralist, I might approach it by, by, by reading the literature on the Caribbean uh, Caribbean literature that relates to colonialism and inequality and power structures and how that has impacted uh, agrarian environments. I might start by looking for evidence to try and confirm a particular theoretical perspective. So I might go in there and try and ferret out evidence by talking to farmers or looking at statistics to show that, in fact, uh, patterns that, that might be visible are linked to a particular factor that have already decided in advance. Um, an, another approach might be, so that would, that would be a sort of a, a more structuralist Marxist approach. Um, another approach which is commonly used in, in environmental change research is, is what we call the land change science research uh, subfield, which is very relevant, obviously, to what I'm doing here. Uh, in that case, they're sort of on the opposite side, which is a focus on quantitative data analysis and modeling. So they might um, seek out uh, data on a variety of socioeconomic and environmental indicators and then run them through uh, re regression tests and models to try and determine which particular uh, socioeconomic indicators, you know, education or, or income or, 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 uh, you know, soil type are, are statistically correlated with the changes of interest, okay? Um, and so, you know, the, the first example of that is essentially starting with a theory and trying to explain the phenomena in terms of the theory, looking for evidence that supports your theory. The second example is, okay, we don't start with a theory, but we build a model, but we start with a particular method or methodology that entails building a, building a quantitative model. And I go some time and effort in the book to, to critiquing some of these other approaches. Uh, I don't want to get too far into that here because that could take up uh, quite a bit of time. And I know you want to talk about the actual empirical findings. Um, but what we're arguing again is that, okay, there's nothing wrong with using statistics. There's nothing wrong with uh, judiciously applying theory. 
but you shouldn't be putting those ahead, getting ahead of yourself by by starting in advance by you know designing your research around the application of a particular model, or or the the attempt to confirm a particular theory. You know what you should be doing is being clear, precise, and and investigate possible causes, much the way that you know Sherlock Holmes when he discovers that there's been you know a murder on the uh, Orient Express or whatever. He, he, he carefully dissects the, the events and, and the actors that could have been involved in them and looks for evidence in whatever form that takes and draws upon whatever tools he has available to him to, to, to locate evidence and evaluate whether the, the evidence suggests a particular cause or not. And in doing that, you can bring to, bring to the fore then different tools. You can bring um, statistical uh, models and tests to help evaluate particular causal possibilities. You can draw upon certain theory and certain literature as you go along here to establish or provide evidence evidence for a particular uh, you know cause that may have been identified by somebody else in a larger theoretical the larger theoretical literature. Um, but again, the point is you you sort of don't lose sight that your ultimate goal here is to explain by building causal chains sort of backward in time and outward or inward in space um, and follow those lines of inquiry where the evidence leads you rather than in order to suit a particular theoretical uh, set of theoretical assumptions or particular model. Now, um, again, it's probably best to give some examples of the findings to illustrate what I want to, what, uh, what we're getting at here rather than simply dig further into the theoretical arguments about this. Um, but I, but this, I just mentioned, you know, I, I said, I said at first, one of the big challenges of doing interdisciplinary environmental change research is the ability to rigorously integrate natural and social science methods. Well, the advantage of our approach is by focusing on events and causes and, and keeping the focus on those things happen, what caused them, you know, other, other events in, in the past, other events, you know, you, you essentially peel away a lot of the, the, the verbiage and theoretical baggage that tends to form barriers between different disciplines and fields, because I think, you know, most people can understand, uh, you know, that this causes this and this causes that. Now, the other big challenge in doing interdisciplinary research is demonstrating that causes can manifest at different points in time and different distances in space. I mean, this is one of the, the really thorny challenges that, that human environment researchers deal with is how do you, okay, you've got a change happening. You've got deforestation happening in the rural countryside of St. Lucia. How can you show that, that it's causally related to events that may not actually have transpired locally and in recent time? And again, the advantage of our approach is that it allows you to do that by focusing again on building causal chains backward in time, outward in space, and so on. And I'll give you some examples when we get into the into the to, to, to the, the the chapters as we're discussing here. So again, yeah. the the method the methodology that we this ACE that we call it is is we think anyways, and I think the the book demonstrates this allows us to deal with and successfully deal with these these twin challenges that that environmental change researchers face yeah and so absolutely so maybe we can dive into these examples and it, it struck me actually as you were talking that one of the reasons you were able to identify reforestation as an event is um because in some senses you you knew that you knew the space and you had been there before and you had been there over, you know, there was a time span there. So in, in some ways you were at, you were thinking like a historian. You you knew what had been there before and you were thinking about change over time, which I, of course, as a historian, <laughs> like. Um, but also it, it struck me that you needed to be very um, familiar with and knowledgeable about the geography and the topography of the island. Um, and it's a it's a very particular kind of island. I guess there are there are there are certain sorts of volcanic islands of which Saint Lucia is one, right? But but um, for those of us who haven't been so fortunate as to travel there, perhaps you can talk a little bit about that geography and the topography because it seems like 
it's a very important part of your argument. Yeah, I mean, the, the um, you know, St. Lucia is one of the, among the smaller islands in the Windward Island chain, and uh, it is a, a quite mountainous island of relatively recent volcanic origin. Um, that means that the soils are, for the most part, quite fertile. It also means that you have a great deal of microclimatic uh, variation and, and geographical variation over very short distances. So, so from high mount, montane forests down to, to dry coastal scrub forests, can, you, know, you can see that over a, a, a distance of just five, six kilometers. Um, that endowed the island with, with a very lush vegetation and quite biodiverse vegetation, but also, you know, it was enormously attractive, like many of the Caribbean islands, for agriculture. Um, St. Lucia, however, because it is rel- quite mountainous, was not as quick, uh, easy to colonize and, and not as attractive to colonize as some of its neighbors, like, you know, Martinique or Barbados, where you had French and English colonists and governments establish a footing and expand agriculture very dramatically early on. Um, St. Lucia was, a, was a somewhat slower to colonize from an ag- agricultural point of view, but actually St. Lucia was interesting because it was seen in, in the earlier period, in the, you know, the 1700s, 1800s, as being of particular strategic importance because it has several deep harbors, particularly castries. And so from a, from a, a kind of military uh, point of view, you know, that w- it was fought over repeatedly between the French and the English in, in large part because of a desire to secure access to these harbors that they, then they could then keep their ships safe at anchor and resupply them and so on. But at the same time, with the, mountain, the mountainous in, interior enabled the indigenous populations to persist for a much longer period of time, and they, were, they resisted colonization quite aggressively through, through over, over a period of a century or so. Um, but it was around the 17, mid-1700s that St. Lucia became fairly firmly established within the French uh, colonial sphere and settled and, and the first government administration established. And the, 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 the uh, appeal again was the harbors, but, but the soil is very fertile. And because of the mountainous conditions, you could grow just about anything on the island. The earlier period focus was on things like cotton which could grow well on the drier eastern portions of the islands. But uh, in the interior lands, and particularly on the west coast where you get, it's very, the terrain is extremely rugged, but you have very high rainfall and, and uh, somewhat a degree of protection from high winds. Um, you saw the adoption of tree crops like cocoa and coffee on a wide scale, and later things like citrus. Um, so the, the geography has had a lot to do with, with how it was settled. And, and, and also, you know, it became apparent in, in understanding the, the reverse of that, the sort of the, the, the uh, depopulating of the countryside and the, and the decline of agriculture. What you see is um, that the lands that were particularly marginal in the sense of harder to get to, harder to farm and so on, the steeper slope lands, the lands that were more distant from roadsides, these are the lands that that essentially were abandoned first and at the and at the largest scale. So that was something I found when I when I did my my survey work. I mean, the, the research entailed initially uh, providing a, a fairly clear idea of what the actual character of this reforestation was. You know. The extent of it, and the and and to what extent the reforestation was simply land abandonment followed by succession of natural forests, or what were people actively planting, replanting these sites, and so on. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the countryside with with a team of students and some local uh, fellows to help, and and we surveyed two watersheds quite thoroughly in terms of the vegetation. And we're able to confirm that, you know, the, the, the character of the forest that was coming back, but also sort of the geographic distribution around across the watershed. And so we're able to um, determine that, yes, in fact, quite clearly the reforestation was not happening everywhere. It was predominantly happening on the, the, the steeper slope lands 
and again, the lands that were further from the road. And, and this is because, yeah, it's, it's awfully difficult to farm on hillsides. It's less productive, but it's also a lot harder work. And it's hard work, you know, in a rugged island setting where, a road, where roads can only penetrate so far in, a lot of the farming that has always been done has been a long way from a nearby roadside. So farmers would have to carry their produce you know, from these remote sites to the roadside where they could be loaded onto trucks. And they would have done that with the aid of mules in the past. But, but I mean, in these very rugged islands, I mean, this was often just done by carrying loads on your shoulders. And I met quite a few elderly farmers who told me they'd lost the use of their knees fairly early on in life because it was so, so hard, so much work walking up and down these still steep slopes and, and carrying heavy loads of bananas and dashin long distances. So you can appreciate this is not a surprising finding in a sense, but nonetheless interesting to be able to document it quite clearly and back it up with some some statistics. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, this is where it gets really interesting. And for me, kind of combines a whole bunch of different sort of processes that you, that are often sort of spoken about separately, actually. So um, the story includes... And you do this in a very succinct manner in the book. The story includes bananas. Bananas are are kind of key. Um, it also includes thinking about the relationship between outmigration and land use, which, as you point out, isn't very often a topic of research. And then finally, um, changing labor markets, a move to tourism, and this idea that these these guys, like the ones, the one that you met, whose knees gave out, um, were actively, um, you know discouraging their children from <laughs> continuing on in the in the farming work right and so there are, there are a whole bunch of kind of cultural and social issues there as well yeah it, and that's part of the fun of doing the research is if you, if you keep an open mind and just keep digging talking to people reading the literature and you know you you start to piece together the complexity of the phenomena so so just walking through some of the key findings here, you know, why was this reforestation happening? You know, it was happening to varying degrees in, in the countryside, as I mentioned, part due to the, the very geography. Um, and the initial thinking about this, and there had been some stuff written about this, um, although not specifically for St. Lucia, was that this, this, this reforestation trend was being driven by the collapse in export commodity markets, particularly for bananas. And certainly that was found to be the case. I mean, um, back in the, um, uh, well, starting in the late 80s, but running through the early mid 90s, there was a series of cases brought to the World Trade Organization that were brought by uh, some Latin American banana producers. I should just, yeah, I haven't pointed out this, that, that, up until the the, the 90s, uh, bananas were, had established themselves as by far the dominant crop on the island. I mean, sugar had long ago fallen to the wayside, and bananas had picked up in the post-war period. And and by sort of the the mid mid late 1980s, uh, bananas just absolutely dominated the agricultural sector at that point. So whatever happened with the banana markets was absolutely crucial. And in fact. So you had a series of, of, of trade challenges brought to the World Trade Organization from several Latin American banana producing countries with the backing of the United States. And the issue that they challenged, took to the WTO, was that banana exports had, been, had occurred for many decades under a protected market to the United Kingdom. Um, the United Kingdom had established a series of policies going way back to the 1930s and in the wake of the Second World War. And this was done very intentionally to help support um, its former colonies or its current colonies that then were transitioning to independence. 
but the, the UK was seeking to help support their development by uh, creating a protected market for exports to the United Kingdom, what was called at the time imperial preference. So essentially, if you were a banana grower in St. Lucia or Grenada or Jamaica, you could sell your bananas to the UK with no tariffs. It was essentially a free open market. But if you were a grower from Costa Rica or Panama or Ecuador, um, you would have to pay a tariff. And so that gave a preferential market advantage to West Indian growers. And this, this preferential market uh, advantage existed for, for decades. And it was challenged, um, you know, first in the late 80s, but more vigorously in the 90s, in, in, when the UK officially joined the common market of the European Union. And so the challenge was actually directed at what was called the Banana Protocol of the European Union, which was a policy that when the Brits entered the Union uh, officially, they, they plus France got a, a concession from the other European countries that enabled them to continue this imperial preference policy under the European common market. And the big banana producers, you know, the, the Chiquita banana companies were not happy about this because they anticipated with the European common market that, you know, boom, we can get in there and now flood the market with cheaper bananas and da 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 And now with, the, with this new banana protocol, they couldn't. So they challenged the banana protocol, which had embedded this imperial preference within it. So anyways, and they won. I mean, the, the World Trade Organization, you know, was quite clear that this imperial preference related policy stuff was a trade infringement in light of the general agreement on trade and tariffs. And, and this led not just to an overnight cessation of this protected market, but sort of a gradual phase, phasing down of market protections that actually continued over many years. But but even though it wasn't an overnight change, nonetheless, it was a, it was it sent sort of shockwaves through the the Caribbean uh, banana market because, in a sense, anybody who was paying attention knew that that the smaller West Indian producers could not compete on a level market, a level playing field with these huge producers um, from Panama, Ecuador, and so on, and so. Very suddenly, there was a, a collapse in the price of, of banana, uh, for exportable bananas and then subsequent further erosion and more generally a great amount of uncertainty. And so within a very short period of time, uh, a very large number, some thousands of, of small farmers in St. Lucia left banana farming altogether. Uh, many others downsized or started shifting onto other things. There were attempts to forestall this by... Um, adopting fair trade uh, banana programs and so on. This met with limited success, but the same kind of problems kept coming back and haunting it as, you know, other other producers in places like Dominican Republic, which adopted fair trade, you know, they could still compete, out-compete because of the scale issues of, grow, of farming on small islands and so on. Um, you're essentially always at a disadvantage in, 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 a, in a globalized competitive marketplace. So the, the price changes, the, the collapse in the, in the price for exportable bananas was a key reason why you saw this significant amount of, of, of departure from farming occurring in the early 1990s in particular. But what, I, what was interesting, and I, you know, this to me was not all that surprising because I was somewhat familiar with this. But as I dug into this thing, what, what was surprising to me in that, I, you know, I hadn't given a lot of thought to things like labor markets and migration, uh, is that I started, you know, when I talked to farmers and I asked them, why did you quit, quit bananas or why did you downsize? They, they all talked about the price being a factor. But the, the other common thing that they kept bringing up was that, you know, the labor is so hard to find. Like, I can't get dependable labor to farm and 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 this was something that that virtually everybody was talking about at the same time as they were talking about the prices so i thought that there's something to this this isn't just a, just a, a coincidence you know and so i started digging into the the question of labor and migration and and how you know to understand you know and i think anybody you know any caribbean scholar knows the importance of 
migration in shaping these islands historically, people coming, people going, you know. And so I, I spent some time getting into that and trying to un- understand how migration patterns might have affected environmental change, like farming and land use and so on. Because then there again, you know, there's a vast literature on Caribbean migration, but almost none of it talks about the, the environmental consequences of that migration. So I spent some time learning about that. And then, you know, where the tourism starts to come into it is when you appreciate how, yes, there's been a lot of people out migrating since the war, um, to, first to the United Kingdom and then to the, the United States and Canada. But in more recent years, more of the, the rural out-migration has actually been to other Caribbean islands and out-migration within the island itself. And a lot of it is just daily out-migration. In other words, f- people who were farming or would have gone into farming under other circumstances are simply are now moving down closer to the cities or they're commuting to work in the hotels or in construction work. And this this change is really quite dramatic. Like when you look at the statistics island-wide in that and how many people are employed in construction work and you can see it. The evidence is everywhere. There's, you know, I mentioned at the outset that the two things that most struck me when I came back was on the one hand, yes, you have this massive reforesting happening uplands, but the other thing that really struck me was just how much hard development had happened in the interim and was continuing to happen. And some of that hard development is infrastructure projects associated with tourism, because when the banana industry started really facing a crisis, the government became very aggressive at promoting uh, tourism, further tourism development. So there was a surge in tourism investment new hotels, uh, upgrades to the port to handle bigger and bigger cruise ships and so on. But interestingly enough, and this was a this was something that was quite intriguing, was a lot of the construction actually is residential. You see, and you see this in many parts of the Caribbean, you go, you know, in the perimeter of towns, and cities, you know, up into the hills, but along the coast, you see lots and lots of new homes. Quite a few, a lot of these homes are quite sizable, and my initial thought, okay, well, who's building all these homes? Is, are there a lot of expats moving here? You know, like is it, is it people from, you know, who are looking for a second home? And what I learned was that the, the large majority of this construction is being driven by um, return migrants and remittance income from people. All those people who left to the UK in the 50s and 60s and to Canada, the US in the 70s and 80s, they're put, bringing money back and reinvesting in property and houses. And many of them in their retirement are actually moving back, either permanently or part-time. You know, they sell, sell their small row house in Birmingham, uh, which is worth quite a lot of money now, and they can bring that money back and, and build a, a big, you know, three-bedroom, four-bedroom, two-floor house. And again, this is all interesting in its own right because it's having an impact on the environment, but, they, but, but, but what's kind of again, was very unexpected was how much, how this plays into this larger sort of deforestation is that who is building, who are building these houses, who are servicing these hotels, who are working in these restaurants, who are serving as security guards for these new properties, who are, who are doing all the gardening work for all these new homes and these hotels and these restaurants. And, and a lot of the, the people working in those sectors are former farmers who are driving the taxis, or there would be farmers. They're young people who, if they had not, you know, gone into construction, there's a chance they would have gone and farmed because they wouldn't have had anything else. A lot of these positions, security guards, lands, you know, landscape workers, uh, you know, hotel cleaners, you know, construction workers, they don't require higher education, but they pay reasonably well compared to the alternative, i.e. farming. And they are higher status, and they are seen as higher status, I should say. And this is where you had mentioned this, the, some of the cultural stuff is really interesting. And in, in that, you know, on the one hand, you know, St. Lucians have a deep attachment to the land. You know, it's very important to have an, something, so, to own some land. And we should talk briefly about that in a minute, about the whole family land thing. But on the other hand, um, very few St. Lucians want to farm. And, and one of the, the interesting findings I got was talking to these farmers, typically older gentlemen who had either retired from farming or a downsized. 
And when asked them why, you know, they 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 completely, you know, they lamented the fact that the market was weak, but they always talked about it being difficult to find good employees, people who who they could count on to hire when they needed them during the harvest season and so on. And believe me, that's an important thing. If you're if you're a sixty year old man and you've got to pull bananas off your hillside farm, you can't do it on your own. You've got to hire some younger younger people and. They, they just said, you know, I couldn't get anybody to help me anymore to hire, you know, and and I and I, so they were lamenting this on the one hand. And I said, well, tell me about your children. Like, how many kids do you have? Well, I have six kids. You know, where are they? Well, one's in in America. One's in two are in Canada. One's in Saint Croix. One works in Castries. And I said, well, are any of them farming? No. And I say, well, uh, and I say, well, that's interesting. What, what, why not? They said, well, for one thing, I didn't want them to. <laughs> so, you know, and this was a, a re- recurrent point made by by current farmers or recently retired farmers was, on the one hand, they 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 lamented not having work or workers to help them on the farm, but on the other hand, they said they were glad that their kids were not farming, and they and they discouraged most of them or many of them actively discouraged their kids from farming because they knew how hard the work was. And they, and they thought if, if my son or daughter can get, can get a job and working in a hotel or in construction or can go to university, maybe go to Canada and study, all of those are seen as a step up from staying and, and, and work in the family farm, you know? And so, 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 You know, it's it's a really interesting kind of kind of story there when you, when you start piecing together these different parts of the puzzle. So on the one hand, a significant cause, obviously, with the re- of the reforestation is the the markets, the, the the and the and the difficulty, you know, the collapsing prices as markets have become more globalized. But this has been very much reinforced by these 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 labor structural changes. And, and as well, to some extent, by even these cultural assumptions, because, you know, when you, when you and I read other people, you know, and farming on, you know, everybody, it's very important to have an attachment to the land, but, but farming is seen in the eyes of many people as a relatively low status profession. And not unlike, I think, probably what happened in Canada, the United States, a century and a half, you know, a century and a half ago, where when people left the family farm, I think that a lot of times the parents were probably encouraging them to leave the family farm because they knew it, how damn difficult farming is. The, the, yeah. It's unpredictable. And it's, you know, the weather, you get a bad storm and there goes a, a crop, you know, and, and these are very stressful things to have to continue with where, where somebody can get a job where even if it's just for four or six months of the year working in a hotel every day, you know, or, or working on a, you know, with a company that's building houses or, you know that's that's a steady income that they get a check every week or every two weeks, and and uh, and they, that can be enough to carry them forward for the rest of the year. Yeah, that's that's where it, for me it gets really interesting because, as you say, the the story of you know the family farm falling apart, and you know here in the U.S. we bring in migrant workers to work to work yeah. on those farms that that nobody else wants to work on, um, but. But what's really interesting is what you've done in terms of relating that to reforestation, right? So, um, and also to the tourist industry. So, um, you know, where where tourism is, is usually under a whole lot of critique and from a lot of different places, in some ways, it's a little bit less tourism off the hook. And and so, I, you know, it makes me think, it makes me wonder, um, how much, and as you say, people do love the land there and they feel very attached to it. How much of this is, you know, people are watching this happen and they're consciously saying, okay, well, you know, maybe this is not such a bad thing. Maybe we should be focusing more on tourism and leaving our hillsides, you know, giving them back to the forest. How much of that dynamic is, is under consideration? Well, I think, you know, at a, at a political level, um, of course, there's you know look the the, the 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 when the real crisis happened in the banana industry in the not in the early mid nineties. I mean, this was devastating to rural communities, and uh, you know many many thousands of people lost employment income, and it followed. You know, the, the, the when bananas were doing very well, 
I mean, it, it was an unprecedented period of rural prosperity for, you know, remote communities that, that had never experienced that kind of, of, of prosperity before. So in that sense, it was really devastating. Um, but over time, I think as, as the reality set in, as, as adjustments have been made and as tourism continued to grow and as these other uh, related sectors and the residential construction thing, you know, the remittance, the return migrants, all that, you know, um, I think that the political discourse has shifted, you know, just realistically that, you know, the feeling is that agriculture will, will remain an important part of, of the economy, but it'll unlikely ever come back to the, that kind of significance again, whereas tourism and related things are here and they're big business. And so, you know, a couple of things are happening. You know, one of the things is with tourism and with all this residential construction, you know, you have higher and higher demands for water, fresh water supplies, right? And so this is a real concern that many policymakers have in the Caribbean, as well as many tourism industry people that, you know, we, we are at genuine risk of water shortages at certain times of the year in these countries. And so that has provided sort of a political impetus to, for the government to secure upland watershed sites, forest sites, formerly agricultural sites, and protect those as part of a strategy for securing water. And, and that's also a, a strategy that helps reduce the risk of things like landslides and stuff, which is actually a real problem in these kinds of, a real risk in some of these islands, as we've seen recent, not too long ago in St. Louis. I mean, they've had several, uh, several severe storm events that led to loss of life because of landslides and flooding. And these are problems that are going to get worse with climate change. So, so in that sense, policymakers are increasingly of the opinion that, you know, we, it's in our interest economically, socially to secure and keep a lot of these uplands in forests over the long term. The other thing that's really interesting, another part of the story, you know, is how the reconfiguring of some of the estate farms. Now, what I've been talking about thus far is mostly um, findings from my research on the small farming sector, the smallholders who are mostly banana farmers and so on. Although they do other things too, many of them, and they, they grow diverse vegetables, diverse fruit crops and stuff too in tandem with bananas or bananas or, or, or now in the wake of that. But if you look at the estate farming sector, now that sector has been in decline for a very long time. So the, the number of active agricultural estates in 19, say 1960, after the collapse of sugar was nothing like it was at the, in, during the heyday of sugar. Nonetheless, um, in both of the watersheds that I was focusing my fieldwork on, there were significant estate lands and estate properties. And they had, some of them had grown bananas as well, and so had to deal with the fallout from that. Um, but they also grew other things. But what is really interesting is, is virtually all of these estate farms have in the last 10, 15, 20 years reconfigured themselves to sort of exploit opportunities from tourism and ecotourism in particular. And part of what that involves is, okay, you know, I'm an estate farmer. I have say, a, you know, a hundred acres of land, maybe I have 200 acres of land, maybe I have 20 acres of land. A lot of it is on rugged terrain. So what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna let all the marginal lands go and let them reforest. Maybe I'm gonna actively replant them and I'm gonna create heritage like walking trails or I'm going to landscape my property now so that it's a beautiful place to come and visit and reconfigure the old plantation house as a restaurant or and build maybe a small boutique hotel on my property as part of that and all of these sort of tourism activities that are happening at least in the in the, on the estates in the two watersheds I work in were all kind of linked to this high quality ecotouristic kind of thing so that they you know you talk to the the managers and owners of those properties and they're very proud of the fact now that they have that their estates are beautiful environmentally speaking you know one they there several of them have really impressive botanical gardens that they've created you know 
and so on and so forth. So the, these considerations also are encouraging this broader pa pattern of reforestation. So whereas if you went back in time, half a century, uh, an estate might have, of its 100 acres of land, might have 80, 80 acres under agriculture. Now it has five or 10 acres. And they're growing food to, to serve in their restaurant or to make into spice mixes, hot sauce that they can sell or cocoa sticks to sell to guests at their, that come to the restaurant or, or come to their property and go on the hiking trails or visit the old sugar mill or go up to the water, neighboring waterfalls or whatever, you know? So that whole thing is something I got into. It's just, it's very interesting to see that. I mean, and many of these tour tourism offerings are be they're beautiful places. I mean, they've done a fabulous job. Many of these estate owners, um, you know, I'd I love to go visit them just because they're such nice places to visit. Good food, beautiful environments. But they're now playing up the nature. It's all about the nature. It's the beauty and the history, you know, and a bit of agricultural history on the side. So, yeah, so you've got the politicians wanting to secure rainforests or forests in the uplands for watershed protection. You've got more and more of the big landowners who've reconfigured their operations away from primarily agriculture into more tourism focus with just a bit of agriculture on the side, you know, and, um, you know, they, they, if, if you got them all into one room and said, you know, what's, is it a good thing that we have forests in the mountains? I think most of them would say yes, because they recognize that that's where their water supply comes from. And they recognize that, you know, a forested hillside is less likely to, have a landslide event than, than not. And, and it's also more seen as more beautiful to the many tourists who come to these areas. So, you know, like Soufraire in particular is stunningly beautiful. It's where the Pitons are located, you know, off just on the coast. And it's, it's, it's just stunning in its beauty. So um, all of these things, the natural amenities, the greening of the watershed, all of that is just, it, it's a bonus from the point of view of those who are advancing tourism or have an interest in seeing tourism advance. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I, I've taken up a lot of your time and I feel like we could talk about this all afternoon. Um, I guess I just have a couple of questions to wrap up. And one is this one that, you know, I have in the back of my mind, of course, as so many of us do, you know, Jamaica Kincaid and her, her very searing critique of tourism in the sense of, you know, the questions of stability and all of the kinds of things that accompany it, right? Um, and so how, how, how is your book an answer to that? Or, or do you think that there's, there's something going on in St. Lucia that, that might be, might allow us to think about tourism a little bit differently? How would you, how would you um, answer Jamaica yeah, Kincaid? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I didn't want to wade like again, because the focus of my work was linking these things to environmental change, you know, I generally did not wade very far, very deeply, if at all, into these these kinds of questions about social impact, say, unless it was clearly related to the environmental aspect of it. But what I will say um, is that First of all, I think St. Lucia has done a pretty good job with tourism. Like, nobody's perfect, believe me. And there are lots of, of development challenges. Um, th there's a real problem with lack of regulation over land use and, and uh, on the island. And, and, I, and like so many places, I think they, they have a hard time saying no to development. Like there's certain hotel, proposed hotel developments that, that – you know, I don't know what the status of them is now, but they some of these places probably just should not go ahead because of the, they're in ecologically sensitive areas and so on. So everybody has its problems, but what St. Lucia has done well is they they steer away from kind of mass market tourism. Um, they've really played up tourism, the ecotourism and heritage tourism side of things. They have programs uh, that are that are there to support. As I meant, landowners and other other actors who might have assets of value on their property, they have programs in place to support them to develop those sites for ecotourism, for heritage tourism, you know. And so, in that sense, there, there's a lot of really productive examples from Saint Lucia. I think about how 
you can do tourism right. Um, and as and and I think that you know I, I was focused on my interviews were focused mostly on talking to farmers, you know, and and people associated with those industries. And I did talk with some hoteliers and some managers and stuff like that. Um, but I suspect if I had if I had gone around and talked to a lot of employees, say who work in tourism, you know, whether there's bartenders or uh, groundskeepers or whatever, I suspect a lot of them would have had lots of good things to say about their their jobs. Even you know, and nobody, I'm sure you get some complaints too. But but I, you know, you'd see that in the morning, you'd see the the girls all hanging out by the minibus stops dressed up in the uniforms off going off to the such and such hotel and they were, they were beaming, you know, usually they were happy. There's like the, the, you know, to them, this, they had great jobs, you know, compared to what the alternatives might've been. And I, I'm by making these comments, I don't want to sugarcoat this and suggest that, that, that all is good because it's not. But, um, but I think that, that I saw again, I think that St. Lucia has done a lot of things right on the tourist front, and not just when I say the government, but I think that a lot of St. Lucians, people who played a really key role advancing the broader tourism industry at the level of local landowners and estate property owners and so on, and just people who work in these industries. I mean, I think that many of them have embraced tourism in a fairly positive and constructive way, you know? And, and, and the evidence is just there when you move around these places. You know, you're imp- often impressed. We're not talking about, you know, uh, spring break in the Florida, on the Florida coastline. You know, right. you're talking about really sort of well-designed properties with beautiful gardens and um, manageable numbers of people. And, you know, so, again, I'm, uh, there are problems there, but... Well, I think that your work really shows us the complexity of it all, right? And the, 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 what you get from thinking about these different perspectives from talking to the farmers who's, you know, who are sending their kids off to the city to do the work. And it reminds me also a little bit of Carla Freeman's work and her pointing out that, that sometimes these, um, the jobs that are non-agricultural are, are in fact more appealing to young people. So it, it gives us a lot to think about in terms of um, what's become a very common and maybe sometimes not particularly deep um, critique of um, of tourism, right? And, and by the way, an interesting thing about the agricultural thing, kind of, there's another interesting parallel that's developing here in St. Lucia that you're seeing in elsewhere is that there is a some return to farming among younger people that's happening, yeah. but they're they're getting into it with their eyes open and with a very much more of a niche focus to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So the organic farmers, organic farming, yeah. farming that's focused on higher valued uh, products in the, in the case of St. Lucia, it's that there, there's some fairly strong linkages now between the local farming community and the hotels and so on in the restaurants. And they want the fresh high quality fruit and vegetables. And so there, the, these, these farmers who are often younger than the old banana farmers, right? Like there's an age thing here. Like the old farmers generation is aging and, and retiring. And, but the, a, a number of these, these farms that are tightly linked to the ho- hotels, for example, or, you know, or more of a niche product market are, um, they're younger and more innovative, more entrepreneurial Farmers, like people who, much like you see here, you know, in, where I live in Sackville, there's a, a new gen, saying it's a generational thing is, is maybe too strong, but there's there's a bunch of younger people that are have gone into farming now and they're growing organic and they're growing high value crops that they're selling into very specific markets like the Sackville Farmers Market or just specific hotels and restaurants that want local bought to buy local and for for lots of these people it's actually a, it's a good lucrative kind of thing so. So farming is is way way down in St. Lucia compared to what it used to be, um, but it, it's still a pretty dynamic economic sector on the island, and it's constantly evolving. Like I, I haven't been down to St. Lucia for a few few years, and I'm sure if I went back now, there'd be a lot of other things going on there in the agriculture side of things that weren't. You know, like there's there's a I mean just to give you one example, there's a one one of the estates 
it's reconfigured into itself as a chocolate hotel. You know, they, they make chocolate on the property because, you know, cocoa farming has always been a big deal on the West Coast. And and uh, they're exploiting this this market for niche chocolate, you know, like it's right. no longer chocolate going into the general bin that goes off to produce the mass market chocolate. It's like high value chocolate from a from local farmers and they buy they buy up you know, these cocoa beans from a bunch of farmers around the area and it goes in to make this high value St. Lucia brand chocolate. And then they built a hotel that's themed around, it's around chocolate. So you can go there and, and learn everything you want about chocolate. And when you go to the restaurant, you know, they have cocoa in, in the food and, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, so there's lots of interesting things that are, that are kind of related to agriculture but not yeah. in the old kind of mass marketed commodity way, you know, that that's really fascinating away from, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I think I'm going to, I'm afraid to tell my kids about that chocolate place, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds, it sounds pretty, um, pretty innovative. Well, I, um, last final, final question, I promise. Um, I'm just curious, what's your next project? What are you working on right now? Well, you know, I've been just since, since I just finished up the book, um, I, I've been, chewing away at some more theoretical methodological stuff like related to the, you know, related to the methodology that Pete Vi and I developed. Um, so I, I've, I've been focusing on writing more about that. It's, it's kind of more heady, heady intellectual philosophical stuff, but, but um, it actually works rather well at the moment with this COVID thing, you know? Nice. Um, yeah. So I, I, I would like to get, back doing some field work in the not too distant future but um at the moment i don't have any concrete plans I'm sort of wait, waiting for a number of things to settle out you know right as, because as because as you, yeah and because as you probably got a sense from the the thing here i mean the you know it's it's nice to be able to jump into a project with both feet a field project it's not something i'd like to do just on the side it, if you want to really get at this stuff you have to sort of really immerse yourself in and it's a m many multi-year kind of effort yeah well i hope we i hope we can all get back there someday <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much it's been my pleasure <laughs>